you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. This is the Trump Tower Burger. It's a burger patty topped with a fried mac and cheese ball, smothered in cheese sauce, and wedged between not one but two grilled cheese sandwiches. It is over the top and kind of stomach turning, much like Trump Tower itself. Yesterday, Donald Trump made a campaign stop at the Red Arrow Diner in Manchester, New Hampshire, where the Trump Tower burger is a featured menu item. We can report that Mr. Trump ordered one Trump Tower burger with fries for takeout, though really I'm not sure how well that traveled. And as Trump was about to leave the restaurant, one of his supporters shouted from the crowd, we've got a J6er here, meaning someone who was part of the Capitol riot on January 6th was there in the restaurant with Donald Trump. And this is what happened next. President Trump, I'm the college Republican person. Can we get a picture? Thank you, President Trump. Where is he? Thank you, sir. I'm good. President Trump, I'm the Here, take this pen. You've been through too much. The woman you saw Donald Trump wrap his arms around here is named Mickey Larson Olson. She is a Trump supporter and a member of the QAnon fringe offshoot known as Negative 48. And as you heard in that diner, Mickey Larson Olson was one of the rioters at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. When police asked her to leave, she resisted, calling them traitors. In the end, six police officers had to physically carry Mickey Larson Olson off of the Capitol scaffolding as she fought them. In September of last year, Mickey Larson Olson was convicted by a jury and sentenced to 180 days in jail for her role in that attack. Just before that trial, Larson Olson spoke to NBC News' Vaughn Hilliard outside of a Trump rally. Those were domestic terrorists inside our Capitol, and I'm going to prove it on my trial. Who were the domestic terrorists? Our Congress. Our Congress that's been stealing elections for a very long time. Our country's been under admiralty law since 1871. What should the punishment for those members of Congress be? Execution for being traitors. That's what our Constitution demands. Our Constitution demands that traitors in our nation are executed. And that's what should happen to each and every person that hijacked the voice of we the people. Is that something that you see actually happening? Yes. A convicted January 6th rioter who called for the execution of lawmakers in Congress. That is the woman Donald Trump embraced yesterday. It's the latest example, but certainly not the only one that we have of Trump actively endorsing the violent mob that attacked the Capitol. This is, after all, the man who has spent months teasing the fact that if reelected, Trump would consider blanket pardons for January 6th defendants. And last month, Trump recorded that bizarre song 
with a chorus of January 6 defendants who recorded their part of the track from jail. He then proceeded to play that track as he stood on stage, hand on heart, in advance of his first major campaign rally in Waco, Texas. All of that is weird and terrifying on its own. But at this point, it's not just Trump with the hugs and the sing-alongs for the Jan Sixers, which is, I guess, what we're calling them now. That attitude, you Sixers have been through too much. You've been wronged. Here's a pen. Whatever. That apologist, revisionist attitude appears to have infected the rest of the Republican Party. Last month, the highest-ranking Republican elected official in the country, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, conspired with a now-unemployed Fox News host to try and use congressional security camera footage in order to whitewash the events of that day. This week, Republicans in Montana voted to bar the state's lone transgender lawmaker, Representative Zoe Zephyr, from entering the statehouse chamber. And when a peaceful group of Zephyr's supporters filled the public gallery at the statehouse chanting, let her speak, Montana Republicans accused Zephyr of encouraging an insurrection, which is also what happened in Tennessee, where Republicans tried to expel three Democratic lawmakers for participating in an anti-gun violence protest at the Capitol. The Republican Speaker of the Tennessee House called that peaceful protest an insurrection. Earlier this month, peaceful protesters gathered outside of Minnesota State House to protest an anti-LGBTQ and anti-abortion legislation. Conservative commentators labeled that an insurrection as well. When transgender rights activists flooded the Oklahoma State House back in February, it was Trump's oldest son, Don Jr., who took to social media and compared the demonstration to an insurrection. Republicans are now taking legitimate forms of peaceful protest, the kind we have seen in this country for decades, and using them to water down the definition of insurrection. Because if everything is an insurrection, then nothing is an insurrection, including January 6th. See how that works? Despite whatever the GOP is trying to do to appease and rehabilitate the Sixers, prosecutors are still fighting for accountability. Over a thousand rioters have been charged in connection with the riot on January 6th. Right now, we're awaiting a verdict in the federal seditious conspiracy case against five members of the far-right group, the Proud Boys, for their role in the Capitol attack. And that verdict could come as soon as next week. At the same time, the special counsel continues his investigation into Trump's role in the January 6th attack and his attempt to subvert American democracy by overturning the results of the 2020 election. Yesterday, prosecutors questioned their most important witness yet, former Vice President Mike Pence, testified for more than five hours behind closed doors. And while Trump and his allies continue to downplay the gravity of that attack on our democracy, while they continue to hand out pens and hugs to the people responsible for it, special counsel investigators are getting to the bottom of what happened and seeking justice. Joining us now is Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel, member of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, and of course, an MSNBC legal analyst. Andrew, it's great to see you. Nice to be here. I know you were wondering when we started with the Trump Tower burger how we were going to end up at an insurrection, and, and Donald Trump connected all the dots for us. Absolutely. It is a serious business here, Trump Tower burgers aside. What is happening in terms of the concerted and outright Republican effort to downplay, to trivialize what happened on January 6th. And I wonder what you think the implications of this whitewashing are for the broader attempt to seek accountability. 
Well, I think um, two things that you played, what happened uh, in terms of the embracing, literal embracing of a January 6th convicted defendant and what happened at Waco, that is playing at a political level. But when I look at that as a former prosecutor, I see an exhibit. Mm. Um, you know, and this is where we're going to have this huge dichotomy between what Donald Trump is doing in the political sphere and with his base and in a court of law. And in a court of law, at least to date, facts and law matter. And when Donald Trump is, and which I think is going to happen, is on trial in connection with the January 6th events, which is leading the coup, mm -hmm. which is why he is denigrating it now, because he is about to be indicted, I think, for being the leader of it. Um, these kinds of um, efforts on his part, where he is embracing people who participated in the insurrection, are an exhibit. Um, he can't then say, I was somehow surprised, I was against it, these aren't my people. Right. He has actually shown He's through his conduct. He's proving the point. Absolutely, that he is part and parcel of them. But this is very much Donald Trump, which is just taking on the unthinkable. I mean, you, know, you go back to John McCain, where everyone thinks of him as a war hero, except... Donald Trump. Trump. Um, people who fought in, uh, in wars are, are people who are chumps um, when I would think those are heroes mm -hmm. of the nation. And this is just part of that same process. But I do think that in court of law, um, you know, it hasn't he's lived a long time without this being sort of being called to the carpet on it. But I think that's about to, that's going to happen. Does it make it I, I had not even like grappled with the idea that that would actually be used as, as evidence in terms right. of the, the interlinkage, the relationship between Donald Trump and the Jan Sixers. But could it work in the I mean, does it make it harder to try the case if there's this attempt to normalize what happened on January 6th? I mean, does that complicate, for example, a jury pool? I mean, I just wonder yeah. if there are dynamics that work in reverse. Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, when the last time I saw something like that, I used to do mob cases and the John Gotti technique was basically to flaunt it. He really wasn't saying I'm not the boss of the Gambino family. He was basically saying, you know what, you're New Yorkers, so what? Um, this is how a, we do business. Exactly. It's a form of jury nullification. Uh, I think if he's in charge in January 6th, case, it will be in Washington, D.C., and I don't think that those jurors are going to have a lot of appetite for that kind of um, that kind of argument. And you've seen hundreds of people at a much lower level yeah. be convicted. Um, so, you know, there's every reason to think that the person who is actually more responsible is going to be held to account also. Let's talk about the, those, like, lower cases further down the ladder. Yep. The Proud Boys were w awaiting that verdict for seditious conspiracy. Is Special Counsel Jack Smith watching that intently? Do you think that that bears any weight at all on his decision to charge? I think he is looking at it. You want to know um, about uh, the particular proof. You want to know if there were any particular issues that the defense raised that were troublesome. But, it, you know, the case against Donald Trump will be very different. And every every case when you're a prosecutor, you think of as in terms of its unique facts. I mean, they're I, like you know, children. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, in some ways, yes, it's a very individualized determination about whether, you know, when 
I mean, it's not very sexy to talk about, but you think about it in terms of the defendant and the specific charge and then the specific elements of that charge. And for each of them, you're saying, can I prove that beyond a reasonable mm -hmm. doubt? So I, I don't the, at the end of the day, I don't think that a verdict on seditious conspiracy in the in the Proud Boys or Oath Keepers case is going to be something that stops Jack Smith from going forward. And the inverse you also think is true. If they don't secure a, a conviction on seditious conspiracy, that doesn't have any, any kind of chilling effect necessarily on what Jack Smith is doing. Behind right. One doors. way or the other, I don't think it I don't think it'll have a lot of effect. And, and by the way, the record is that they've so far have been fairly yes. successful. Yes. I, I do want to ask about the, the things that happened down in Atlanta this week, which is this yeah. bizarre letter that we got from the Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis, yeah. which was presumably this Nothing to see here, folks, letter that she was sending to the sheriff suggesting increased security between July 11th and September 1st because there may be something happening right. <laughs> that, well, that, that could arouse the passions. I wonder of, what that would be. Yeah, what right, could that right. be that could get people up, up in arms or in, incited to violence? Which seemed to, I think, everybody that read it, A, unusual, and B, very much like she was telegraphing, I'm going to convict, I'm going to charge, uh, not convict, I'm going to yes. charge Donald Trump. Uh, between July 11th and September 1st. Yep. What did you make of it? And why do you think she made this announcement public? So it, it certainly is extremely unusual. I, in my you know, 21 plus years at, at the Department of Justice, I've never seen a, a letter like that. It doesn't mean that it's improper. It's just extremely unusual because usually you just either charge or you don't charge. You don't really telegraph. I'm going to be making decision between this minute and that minute. Yeah. It's just literally mark your calendars. Right. Don't go away for the weekend. Be around. Right. I mean, it's sort of very helpful for us. It, indeed know, it is. You know, um, there's like, you know, no vacation during that time. Sad. Um, but uh, I think... Uh, she purported to be saying that I want to give you advance notice because you may need to have additional security. I'm not really buying that, to put it to be blunt, because you can do that behind the scenes. Well, but also, doesn't it undermine security if you're telling people when it's going to happen? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's that. There's like you're sort of also telling people like, you know, this is the time to yeah, get organized. You might want to get a ticket to right. Fulton County. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that, you know, I don't know, but I sort of suspect that she used an unfortunate term in January when she told a judge that she was going to make a decision imminently. Yeah. And then she's been walking that back, which is fine. I just sort of feel like, you know, when you're when you're a public servant, you sort of owe a real duty of candor. Yeah. And I just think that it it just would have been better to say nothing and just sort of take the heat in terms of, you know, this will come whenever she's ready. That is, that is, it seems that, that Jack Smith is doing the opposite of Fonnie Willis, right? We yeah. have no information. We know right. that Mike Pence testified. Maybe it's wrapping up. Maybe there are months to go. Who can know? Do you think right. Jack Smith was part of the audience for that Fonnie Willis no. letter since there's overlap? No. Okay. <laughs> Do you think that there's any consideration between these two groups of people who are in many ways prosecuting some of the same crimes? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the Georgia case I think of as a subset of one of the investigations that Jack Smith has, which is the January 6th case, but it is much broader than just Georgia. So there would be a natural reason for them to have deconfliction, meaning if you've got a certain number of witnesses that would be relevant to both Jack Smith's case involving Georgia yes. and to Fonnie Willis's, you don't really want to have those witnesses 
you know, pulled into two different directions. They don't have to be interviewed twice. You do have that kind of coordination. I have seen that. So I wouldn't be surprised. I, I do think that um, with respect to the other cases where there isn't that overlap, I don't think there is that kind of coordination. But I don't think the letter would have, was sort of written as a sort of um, wink to Jack Smith, because I think they have if telephones. If you need Rudy Giuliani right. on uh, August yeah. 5th, I might have I, You can my... just pick up the telephone and yeah. have a conversation in the way that happens you know, when you have federal and state cases or two federal cases, and you need to make sure that they're running smoothly. Do you have any thoughts on the timeline for the special counsel's probe into January 6th, given the fact that the vice president just testified for five hours? Um, I just think knowing Jack Smith and knowing the sort of the position he's in, which is that cases have to be if they're going to be brought, they have to be brought quickly. I think we're at the at the very tail end, both with respect to Mar-a-Lago and with respect to January 6th. I mean, you know, Mike Pence is obviously a sort of capstone witness. Um, It doesn't mean that there won't be additional cleanup work. I do think that you should look for whether defense counsel has been brought in to make an argument, because that's a standard practice to give that opportunity. Um, But I think that last piece is sort of the last thing I'd be looking for. Ooh. But I don't know what your your phrase tail end may not be. I don't mean imminent. (laughs) Okay, Fonnie Wellis. Andrew Weissman, it's great to see you. Thanks for your time. We have a lot to get to this evening. Democrats at the state level are celebrating a pair of unexpected victories against extreme abortion bans. And we're going to talk about what went right and what happens now. Plus, Supreme Court Justice Sam Alito is upset that people are criticizing the court and that he has to take time out of his schedule to rule on Mifepristone. That's next. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Mephestoprone, however you pronounce the word. That is how Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito apparently pronounced the name of the abortion medication Mifepristone. I'll say it again, Mifepristone. Alito was speaking in an extended interview with The Wall Street Journal and explained that he was annoyed that he had to stop doing what he was doing to decide whether this drug, Mifepristone, or however you pronounce the word, would stay legal while the case worked its way through our judicial system. Quote, Justice Alito finds these applications a nuisance. So sorry to interrupt your workflow, Justice Alito. It's just a decision about whether or not millions of people with uteruses across the country can access the most commonly used method of abortion. But sorry for bothering you. 
Now, we got that little peek behind the curtain because for some reason, Justice Alito thought it was time to speak to the press. The headline of his newly published interview in The Wall Street Journal is, This Made Us Targets of Assassination, which is definitely some kind of headline. It refers to threats Justice Alito says were caused by the leak of his own decision in the Dobbs case, the one that overturned Roe v. Wade. And to be crystal clear here, physical threats against anyone are reprehensible. But the bulk of this interview is not actually about that. The bulk of this interview is Justice Alito describing his outrage that anyone is criticizing the court at all. Quote, this type of concerted attack on the court and on individual justices is new during my lifetime. We are being hammered daily and I think quite unfairly in a lot of instances. And nobody, practically nobody, is defending us. Alito says this kind of criticism undermines confidence in the government. The Wall Street Journal says his interview took place on April 13th. And just that day, April 13th, ProPublica advanced its already extensive reporting on Justice Clarence Thomas and his ethics scandals, reporting that Thomas sold a house to a conservative billionaire while Thomas was on the court and Thomas did not disclose the sale. And despite the fact that her son no longer owns it, Thomas's mother still lives in that house. When The Wall Street Journal asked Alito about Thomas's scandals, though, Alito's only reply was, I'll stay away from that. Yeah, why would anyone in their right mind criticize the court? Anyway, since then, in just two weeks, we have gotten the news that just days after being confirmed to the Supreme Court, Justice Neil Gorsuch sold property to the head of a major law firm that frequently has business before the court, and Gorsuch didn't disclose who he sold that property to. And just today, we learned that a whistleblower claims that Chief Justice John Roberts' wife who recruits lawyers for elite law firms, has made at least $10 million in commissions while her husband has been on the court. Quote, at least one of those firms argued a case before Chief Justice Roberts after paying his wife hundreds of thousands of dollars. So Justice Alito's assertion that it's the media criticism of the court that's undermining trust in the institution is very much up for debate. Joining us now is Ian Milheiser, senior correspondent at Vox, where he focuses on the Supreme Court. He is also the author of The Agenda, How a Republican Supreme Court is Reshaping America. Ian, thank you for joining me. I know you have thoughts on this. What do you think of Justice Alito's assertion that the court is being treated particularly unfairly? Oh, my God. I I mean— what country does he think he lives in? Because this is the United States. And here in the United States, we criticize our leaders. That is something that is actually called the First Amendment that allows us to criticize our leaders. And Alito is a justice of the Supreme Court. So he's supposed to be one of the guardians of our Constitution. And if he doesn't get that as a powerful public official, we get to criticize him— Dude's in the wrong line of work. Yeah, you know, even Antonin Scalia understood that people who were critics should have to do so publicly and not be afraid of the the blowback, if you will, right? We know this from correspondence between, or I think even rulings between him and Thomas, right? Thomas is all for secrecy. And Scalia was like, this is the home of the brave. Stand up for what you believe in. The idea that the court should somehow be shrouded in a packed in bubble wrap particularly at this time when they're issuing some of the most controversial rulings of my lifetime, I think it's flabbergast. The sense of grievance that was on display in this article was really uh, uh, stunning, to my mind. 
Yeah, it, it was astonishing. I mean, does he not have an aide who can tell them, like, hey, dude, you, you have the option to just keep your mouth shut. You don't have to embarrass yourself in an interview that's going to be published in a newspaper. You know, part of what I think the problem is, I mean, if we could tie together this silly Alito interview with the Thomas scandal and all the other news that's going on with the Supreme Court— judges are supposed to operate, you know, not just, you know, be completely ethical and above board, but they're supposed to avoid what's called in the appearance of impropriety. And the reason for that is because judges aren't elected. They don't have a mandate from the people. The only legitimacy that they have comes from a sense that they are fair, objective, neutral, and they apply the law. And when they damage that impression, either by giving a stupid interview to the the Wall Street Journal or by going off and, you know, doing whatever Clarence Thomas is doing with his billionaire benefactor, you know, that doesn't just make them look foolish. It diminishes the reason why we trust the court. It diminishes the reason why we give the court power in the first place, because if we can't trust them to be objective and neutral and follow the law and not do corrupt things— then they shouldn't have power. Well, it's also very revealing in terms of his attitudes towards some of the very cases that are before the court. The fact that he can't be bothered to figure out how to pronounce mifepristone suggests someone who's quite cavalier with rulings that affect people all over this country and their bodily autonomy. I I also found that shocking and that these rulings themselves are a nuisance to him. Yeah, I mean, I I started off by saying that Alito is in the wrong line of work, and I really mean that. I mean, I've covered Alito now for 12 or 13 years. He is the most reliable partisan on the court. He's never found an argument seeking to repeal the Affordable Care Act that he wouldn't vote in favor of. He's never found a restriction on abortion that he wouldn't vote in favor of. He was the one of two justices in this Miffy Prestone case, and the only one who wrote a dissent. He was two. There were two who noted their dissent. He was the only one who wrote one. Just in case after case after case, he just does the partisan thing. And, you know, if you're a senator, that's a fine thing to do. You know, there are plenty of jobs that you can have in in federal politics where you get to be a partisan. Most jobs in federal politics, you get to be a partisan. The one job you can't do that is judge. And he is a judge. And uh, again, I, I think he needs to understand what his role is supposed to be. I will say, we don't have the time to talk about it here, but he also has a theory that the leak of the Dobbs opinion came as a result (laughs) of effectively the liberal justices on the court who did not want the the ruling to become the decision of the court. We'll have to talk about that at another time, Ian. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you, Alex. Still more to come tonight. In the 1980s, Donald Trump called for the execution of five men who were later exonerated. And we are going to talk to one of those men tonight about karma. Plus, extreme abortion bans go down to defeat in two different red state legislatures. Is reality finally sinking in for Republicans? That is next. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 
here on MSNBC. We are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. the scene outside the doors of Nebraska's legislature yesterday after a bill failed that would ban most abortions in the state. Under the so-called Heartbeat Act, the procedure would have banned after the procedure would have been banned after six weeks of pregnancy, which is, of course, before most women even know they're pregnant. That bill failed because it fell one vote short of the number needed to move it forward after two senators abstained from voting in the second round of debate. Now, one of the senators who abstained was an 80-year-old Republican who co-sponsored the bill, a guy named Senator Merv Reapy. Senator Reapy was now bothered by the idea that the bill could be interpreted as a total ban. He was concerned about what message this would send. Since the fall of Roe, states have proposed hundreds of abortion-related bills, but voters across the country have struck down amendments, even in conservative states like Kentucky and Kansas, and they have elected leadership that will enshrine a right to choose, as in Wisconsin. And then there's what's happening in South Carolina, a state that Donald Trump won with 55 percent of the vote in 2020. Late last night, another abortion bill failed in that state Senate, where Republicans outnumbered Democrats by 15 seats. This measure was more extreme than Nebraska's. It would have banned abortion from the moment of conception, with a 12-week exception for rape and incest. That measure failed because of a bipartisan effort led by the only women in the state legislature, the state's five female senators. They were joined by every male Democratic senator and three Republican men in a vote to end debate on the bill for the year. How many men in this chamber that have voted for personhood or the six-week ban or any of these abortion bans how many, none have come to me, how many men in this chamber have come up to any of us women senators and say, how do you feel? Joining us now is South Carolina State Senator Margie Bright Matthews. Uh, Senator Matthews, thank you for making time to join me tonight. I would love to know how uh, you came together with your fellow uh, female colleagues in the state Senate to decide to do this. It was a bipartisan coalition. Can you tell me a little bit more about what it was like behind the scenes? First, thanks for having um, me on. Um, this is not the only issue that us three, uh, five senators agree on. Um, but in this particular situation, we started talking about this years ago. Um, through the years, we've been talking about the dogmatic way in which they keep the men in the um, General Assembly keep bringing this abortion issue up. And it's um, the Dobbs decision just seemed to add a little bit more fire under them to again present it to um, uh, in the Senate and in the House. So we've been talking ab about it. And I think just the idea of this abortion issue, it's um, bonded the five of us women together to fight. <laughs> 
Can you tell me a little bit more about the Republican women in your coalition? Because I think three of them still support a 12-week ban, which is a tighter window than the uh, present 22-week ban. Are they concerned? What? Why are they? What is the meaningful difference for them between six and 12 weeks? Is it a political issue? Is it an optics issue? Is it a moral issue? I mean, how do you how do you see their position on abortion and restricting it more broadly? First, let me uh, say one thing. All five of us are believe that we're all pro-life. We just have a different way of defining what pro-life is. Um, the three, the other three senators, there's one that really has been pushing the 12-week ban. The other two have said that they will, um, they're okay with the six-week ban. Um, the uh, the other Democratic senator with myself, we have specifically continuously said that a six-week ban is simply um, a progressive um, ban all all out on abortion because that's just the beginning. Now it's six weeks, and next year they'll start again. So, do you, I mean, what happens now? Because there's still the, the, a six-week ban is still on the table. It's been passed it in the passed. House, and it now could go to the Senate. I mean, does that pass? Because as you as you point out, it is momentary victory. The fact that a total ban based in conception did not pass, but a six-week ban is very, very close to an all-out ban. Is that going to pass, do you think? A six-week ban passed the Senate already. We sent it to the House weeks ago, um, but the House has refused because they have a supermajority there. They refused to take this, our bill up, the six-week ban. Let it be clear, I'm not happy with the six-week ban, and, and several of the other senators are not. However, the House is going to have to consider this week, because we only have six more days in this legislative section, they're going to have to decide if they're going to take up the bill that was passed in the Senate. Yes, and I'm sorry for getting the reversal of the uh, uh, chambers uh, wrong. Can I ask you if you think that this represents Republicans coming to terms with either the moral or political uh, downsides, if you will, to uh, restricting bodily autonomy. Do you think they're finally beginning to understand that they will have to pay a price at some point should they choose to rescind uh, a woman's right to choose? I am not optimistic. I really am not. Um, it is my understanding from the rumbling that I've heard in my own um, chamber and the Senate chamber is that they will start again once the session begins in January again with a total ban. Um, I, I would be surprised if the House accepts the six-week ban. Um, I'm concerned that they're trying to whittle down some of the Republicans that have um, been more reasonable on the six weeks and even the 12 weeks, the first trimester. Um, um, they're trying to wear them down, so to speak, politically. I'm well, not sure that there's really a big moral issue at all. As they say, one step forward, potentially 15 steps backwards. We will follow this as it develops. South Carolina State Senator Margie Matthews, thank you so much for making a little time tonight. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Still to come this evening, Donald Trump made headlines by calling for incredibly harsh punishment for the so-called Central Park Five, and he refused to ever acknowledge their innocence even after they were exonerated. Now it is Trump's turn in court, and one of the exonerated five is using the term karma. That is next.
That's our show for tonight. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.